Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. If you would turn, please, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 7 and 8. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. Just kind of hang there with me for a minute. Every now and then I get a call or I get a visit with a distraught husband or wife. I've just learned that my husband is seeing another woman. Or my wife is cheating on me. She denies it, but I'm not stupid. I answer the phone and someone hangs up or tells me it's a wrong number. Or she picks it up and she immediately goes outside to talk. And she thinks I don't know what's going on, but she's done this before. I'm not stupid. Thankfully, most of the marriage counseling I do is not about infidelity. Usually it's more like this. My husband is ignoring me. Or my wife is insufferable. I was looking for a good illustration and I found this one. So there's this couple, they'd been married for 60 years. And throughout their lives, they had shared everything and they loved each other deeply. And they'd not kept any secrets from, from one another except for this small shoebox that the wife kept in the top shelf of her closet. When they got married, she put the shoebox there and she asked her husband never to look inside of it and never to ask any questions about its contents. And so he honored that request and did that their whole 60 years together. Well, as uh, life happens, uh, he forgot about the box until his wife became very ill and the doctors were sure that she had no way of recovering. So he put his wife's affairs into order and he, then he remembered the box in the closet and he got it down and he brought it to her at the hospital without opening it. And he asked her if maybe it would be okay now if they opened it. And she said, okay. So they opened the box and inside were two crocheted dolls and a roll of money, $95,000. The woman told her husband that the day before they got married, her grandmother told her that if she and her husband were ever going to get into an argument with one another, that they should work hard to reconcile. And if they were unable to reconcile, she should simply just keep her mouth shut and crochet a doll. And the man was so touched by this because there were only two dolls in the box. And he said, I'm just... I'm just so blessed by this. But where did the $95,000 come from? And she said, well, every time I made a doll, I sold it in a craft show for $5. <laughs> <laughs> I did the math on that this morning. 19000 <laughs> I Didn't that great? I just laughed my head off sitting at my desk this morning. I what do you do? What do you do when your relationship with your mate becomes frustrating and confusing? What compass do you follow? Where do you find the strength to do the right thing? Well, in a Christ-centered marriage, we find it in Christ. 
A Christ-centered marriage has a higher purpose about it, and it has a higher power inside of it. Look at uh, Romans chapter 14, and let me just define what it means to be Christ-centered. Romans 14, verses 7 and 8. This is in a series of practical exhortations that Paul is giving to uh, the Romans as he's concluding his letter there. He's already done all of the doctrinal stuff. So he says, For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's the definition of a Christ-centered life. It's all about Christ. It's not about anything else. All of our lives are organized around Him and His purposes for us, and His principles, and His teachings. Look, if you will, for a little bit of uh, affirmation and confirmation of that, over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Now here Paul is talking in, the bro- in his broader context about the ministry of reconciliation, but he says right in the middle of that, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, and was raised again. That's the definition of a Christ-centered life. We no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us. He's the organizing principle of our lives. So a follower of Christ enters a marriage with a different organizing principle than someone who is not a Christ follower or not a Christ-centered person. We can be self-centered and enter a marriage, seeking only to get our needs met. Or we may even be spouse-centered, which is a nobler thing, seeking to meet our mate's needs, but we are still going to need to knit those crochet dolls from time to time. Or we can be Christ-centered, which is on a higher plane altogether. Because we tend to compartmentalize our lives. What we do is we tend to say, well, I've got my work life and I have a set of organizing principles. I have an organizing principle for my work life. And I have my social life, and I have an organizing principle for my social life. And I have my religious life, and I have an organizing principle for my religious life. But those boxes tend not to touch each other. We compartmentalize. Men tend to do this more than women, but all of us do it to some extent. But a Christ-centered life means he's the master of the whole pie. He gets the whole thing. And everything that we do orients around Him, especially our marriages. And there's some very definite benefits, some very definite advantages to a Christ-centered marriage. But before we look at that, I want to pull back the curtain a little bit on some unhealthy versions of marriage. Do a little compare and contrast. A self-centered marriage. Let's look at just a a couple of things about self-centered marriages. Self-centered marriages are often about one of two things power or pleasure. I'm sure there's lots of others, but I just picked those two because that's what I've seen. Some marriages are about power. It may be political power. It may be about economic power. It can be about physical power. 
Sometimes it's about social power or emotional power, but here's my definition of a marriage that's about power. It means to leverage the strength of your position or your personality against the weakness of your spouse's personality in order to get that person to meet your selfish agenda. That is a marriage about power. It's getting what I want when I want it and I'm going to be in charge whether that's by having an overpowering personality that just bowls my mate over or whether that has to do with being uh, very subtle and, and uh, persuasive and passive-aggressive and manipulative. You can be about power that way just as easily as you can be about power by being overpowering. I've seen women with very powerful personalities dominate their husbands instead of partner with them and following their lead. And sometimes it's over money and sometimes it's about social or political power. But more often in the evangelical world, what I see is men abusing the concept of headship and lording it over their wives. Controlling every movement, every expenditure, every conversation, every endeavor and justifying it by appealing to Ephesians 5, which I'm going to talk about in just a few minutes. So sometimes people are entering into a marriage and they're just on a power trip. I mean, really, there are people out there in the world that are just like that. It's, only just, it's just about me and it's just about my thing and my power. Some people, on the other hand, seem very powerful, project a very powerful personality, but... Often when you'll see that, it's, it can be more about pain than it is just about being an overwhelming person. People in deep emotional pain often project a powerful front to protect themselves from further pain. And they'll inflict pain on their spouses as a way of dealing with their own pain. And my, one of my daughters learned this a long time ago when... Uh, she was reading a book. She was reading Robinson Crusoe. And I was asking her to tell me about Robinson Crusoe. And she said, well, one of the things that I learned, Dad, is that bullies are really scared inside. I said, really? She said, yeah. Bullies are really scared inside. People who've experienced a lot of pain often react to that pain, not by running and hiding, but just by getting meaner on the outside so that nobody can get past that shell. We'll contrast that with a Christ-centered marriage. And a Christ-centered marriage is about serving each other. It's not about being powerful. It's just like uh, the passage I just read a few minutes ago about serving. Here's one in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So some self-centered marriages are about power. A Christ-centered marriage is about serving. We're going to come back to that in a second. But there's another reason that people get married. It's not a Christ-centered reason. It's not a, it's not a spouse-centered reason. It's maybe not a power-centered reason. It's a pleasure-centered reason. Self-centered marriages can be about personal pleasure. When personal pleasure is at the center stage of a marriage, one partner is telling the other one, I will stay with you until you bore me, and then I'm out of here. I uh, used a 
illustration from the Eagles last, year, last week, a song from um, Don Henley. Here's another one from their latest album. I won't do the whole song, but they, ha they had this song about a relationship between two people, and it's called Busy Being Fabulous. <laughs> Have you heard that? It didn't get a lot of airtime. I came home to an empty house and found your little note. Don't wait up for me tonight. And that was all she wrote. Do you think I don't know that you're out on the town with all your high rolling friends? What do you do when you come up empty? Where do you go when the party ends? You were just too busy being fabulous. Too busy to think about us. I don't know what you were dreaming of. Somehow you forgot about love and you were just too busy being fabulous. Man, what a line. Some marriages are about personal pleasure. It's just about being fabulous. I remember a, a quote from Ted Turner, the man who founded Turner Broadcasting System a long time ago. When he married, I don't know if it was his second or his third wife, I forget, during his yacht racing years, he told her this when he got married. You know the drill. My work comes first, my boat second, and my marriage third. And amazingly, the marriage lasted more than 10 years, but not much more. Okay, well, those are the other-centered other than Christ-centered marriages, what about the advantages of a Christ-centered marriage? They have definite advantages. Advantage number one is it changes my vision of my mate. It changes my vision of my mate. If you are still in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, we read that, and we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, he died for all. So jump to 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I'm going into a marriage, and I'm going into it as a Christ-centered person, and I'm because of that, I'm no longer going to look at my spouse as just the daughter of so-and-so who grew up in such-and-such such a place, or the, the son of so-and-so who grew up in such-and-such such a place. I'm going to see my spouse as a new creation, if indeed they are, a new creation in Christ, even if they're not a new creation, and I don't advise people who are believers to marry unbelievers, because that's what the Bible calls an, an unequal yoke. But if they're not, then I'm at least looking, them at, looking at them in a spiritual sense, and I'm saying... There's more to this person than what I see on the outside. I see a future for them that's God's future for them, and I'm going to be part of working towards that goal, towards glorifying God in their lives. That's my modus operandi in my whole marriage. I'm helping them on their journey with God. So it's not just about me. It's not just about being powerful in the relationship or getting my way in the relationship. It's about both of us partnering together on this journey towards being conformed to the image of Christ. That's a totally different modus operandi for marriage. I mean, it's just completely different from what the world pursues. My respect for that person goes up. My respect for my wife goes up. My respect for my husband, if, if, if it's a wife. It's like he's a man with a calling and a purpose and a new and glorious destination. And my job is not just to get what I need from him or what I need from her, but to go with them on their journey. And it just changes the dynamic 
of the relationship. Another benefit to a Christ-centered marriage is that we understand our roles differently. I mean, let's not be, uh, we can't be in denial about this. The Bible is very clear that there are roles in the marital relationship that are the biblical model, and that's in Ephesians 5. Let's turn there. And I know we've already covered this to some extent looking at Genesis. I want to look at it a little bit more in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And again, we're at the back half of one of Paul's letters. He does his theology and his doctrine in the front half, and then he does his, his practical application of the theology in the back half. So if you're not familiar with the front half of Ephesians, you should read the front half because the back half is based on that. All of these practical exhortations are based on that. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. When Christ is at the center of our marriages, we see our roles differently a lot an awful lot of ink has been spilled over this passage. And most of it has to do with that word head. And modern women read that word head, and immediately the first thing that happens is they, th there's just this knee-jerk reaction inside that was just like my little brother. I had an older brother. I was in the middle, and I had a younger brother. Some of, uh, some of you have met him. He's no longer littler than me. Uh, <laughs> I can't pick them, and I can't tell stories about my wife and children without owing them $5 if I tell stories from the pulpit, but I can talk about my brothers all I want. <laughs> uh, when we were kids growing up, Mike was the oldest and the biggest, and of course, as the first child, what do the first children always do? Tell the younger children what to do. And the, the reliable response from Warren would be, you're not the boss of me! You can't tell me what to do. When, when modern women read, read Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, they go, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. So it's like, okay, how do I reconcile? I'm a Christ-centered person. How do I reconcile that this is God's word for me? Well, let me ask you to think about it like this. Let me, let me define something a little bit about this word head. In a Christ-centered marriage, what that means is the buck stops with the husband. Or more accurately, the center of authority in the institution of the family rests in the office of husband. He fulfills an office, and he is responsible to a higher authority for how he carries out that office. He's like the head steward on a great estate. Or if you remember my aircraft carrier metaphor from a few weeks ago, he's like the captain of the ship with the wife as the executive officer, both of whom have to rely on each other and trust each other completely in order to have a harmonious and effective ship. But let me, let me get you to focus a second on verse 23. You see that word head, verse 23? That's the one that causes all the trouble. Modern women see that and they react like my little brother when Mike told him stuff to do but we need to focus on the, on another more important word in that same verse and the word is savior the word is savior 
let me illustrate it like this. Uh, women, you're, you're in your car and you're driving home and it's a very stormy night. I mean, bad, rainy storm. You can't, visibility is terrible. The creek is flooded, the bridge is washed out, but the visibility is so terrible, you can't see it. And you've got a baby strapped in a seat behind you. And you plunge right off where that bridge was supposed to be, and you land in the swollen creek, and the waters are rising in the car, and you're trapped, and you can't get out. And you think you're both dead. And suddenly a light flashes across your face, and you hear a faint voice hollering over the roar of the wind and the water, is anybody in there? And you're screaming, yes, yes, come and get us. Yes, yes. Suddenly a man jumps in the water with a rope tied around his waist. And he makes it out to the car and yanks open your door and takes his knife out and cuts your seatbelt and pulls you loose and pulls you up on the shore and says, here, here's my coat. Wrap up in this. Is there anybody else in the car? Sit right there. Is there anybody else? And you say, yes, yes, there's a, my baby's in there. He says, stay right there. I'm going to go get him. Now, do you think that you're going to respond to that guy like, I'm not sitting here. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> See how crazy that is? Okay, guys, your job is keep going in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water. Every day is a jump in the creek and rescue day, guys. Every day is a savior day. Every day is a servant day. Go in and serve. Do you think that if you had an attitude like that in your home, and you approached your relationship with your wife like that, do you think she would ever say, you're not the boss of me? Really? I don't think so. I don't think we would have these arguments if men knew how to do that because they were Christ-centered men in their marriages. But we're kind of more like uh, Professor Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. Where the devil are my slippers? You know, bring me my coffee. That's not a Christ-centered servant, savior, husband. It's just not. So, you see the difference? Men, we are accountable to a higher standard. If you weren't getting that already, I'll just say it that way. We are accountable to a higher standard of how we carry out our marriages than any other relationship on earth. God holds us accountable. He says uh, in 1 Peter 3, 7 that we're to treat her as a fellow heir of the gracious gift of life or else our prayers will be hindered. Guys, you want your prayers hindered? Well, then treat her like a gracious, like an heir of the gracious gift of life and like you're there to give yourself up for her every day. That's the deal. A friend of mine um, 
in another city is struggling with a broken marriage. And his, his wife is mentally ill. She's mentally ill. And she has refused. He has begged her over the years and to go to counseling and to get help for this. And she will not go. Her pride will not let her go. She's offered to commit suicide two or three th times. She's actually said she might take one of her children with her. I mean, it's bad. And she won't go. And now she's gotten the best bulldog lawyer in town and has sicked him on her husband. And this guy could easily do the same. But he will not attack her because he is a Christ-centered man. There's just a difference. I think that's convicting enough for the time being. Let me, let me just give you one more advantage. You remember the lyrics of the Rolling Stones hit? I bet you could fill in the blank. I can't get no. Yeah. There are a lot more advantages to a Christ-centered marriage, but probably the greatest one is revealed in this story by a guy named Christopher West, and it's in his book, Fill These Hearts. He said he was having a, a, he had this discovery that he and his wife came to about the same time. They were having dinner. He said, years ago we were out to dinner, and my wife observed something that was different about our marriage in recent years. She said, something good is different about our marriage. And she asked me if I had any insight into what it was. And he said, I thought for about uh, for a minute, and I smiled, and I said, yeah, yeah, I think, I think I know what it is. I think I've been realizing deep in my heart that you can't satisfy me. And she got this big smile on her face, and she said, yeah, that's it. I've been realizing the same thing. You can't satisfy me either. And he said, I was just thinking if people in this restaurant were probably overhearing our, our discussion, they probably thought, these guys are on their way to a divorce. Divorce. That's where they're headed. He said, I love my wife more than words can express, and I know she loves me, but I can't possibly be her ultimate satisfaction, and she can't be mine. And he said, that's why our conversation at the restaurant was just so much cause for rejoicing. Listen to this, and if you can, write this down. I'm going to say it twice. Only to the degree that we stop expecting others to be God for us, are we free to love others as they really are, warts and all, without demanding perfection of them. Only to the degree that we stop expecting others to be God for us, to meet all of our needs? Are we free to love others as they really are, warts and all, without demanding perfection of them, whether they're a spouse or a friend or a son or a daughter or any other relationship? And only to the degree that we are free from idolizing human beings are we also free to take our ache for perfect fulfillment to the one who can satisfy it? In a Christ-centered marriage, our satisfaction in life comes from someone who's actually able to give it. That's Christ himself. So that we can then live in our marriage out of an abundance and overflow of resources.
so that we can love our mates. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to have your word to guide us. We're so grateful that um, you caused your servants to write these things down because without these principles that you give us so clearly in your word, um, we would just sort of follow our own way like the rest of the world. And many people, Father, we confess in your church have followed the world. And um, we have a rampant divorce culture in the church because of it. We ask for your mercy, your forgiveness, and we ask God for a healing of marriages. Any that are damaged in this church, but for a healing of marriages in Halifax County, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, in the southeastern and mid-Atlantic United States, across the whole country, we ask for a healing of marriage in your whole church, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would bring about deep and lasting conviction and repentance on our part. That we would choose to obey you in every aspect of our marriages. That we would live Christ-centered lives and Christ-centered marriages. And that that new, healthy marriage culture would be a beacon and a light on a hill for the rest of the country to emulate. Please do that, Father, not for our sakes, but for your glory and for the glory of your kingdom and your son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.